Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. This podcast will focus on the impact of violence and trauma among young black men. Data suggests that deaths due to violent injury has been decreasing throughout the United States. However, black men are disproportionately overrepresented among victims of violent injury and are at higher risk of violent trauma recidivism than all other populations. Dr. Joseph Richardson, an associate professor of African American studies at the University of Maryland, is a leading scholar in the areas of violence and trauma among black men. Dr. Richardson, we're pleased to have you join us. Please tell us more about your work. I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland, College Park, in the Department of African American Studies and the Department of Anthropology. In 2013, I initiated a study at Prince George's Hospital Trauma Center, where I uh, longitudinally and ethnographically followed the lives of 25 young Black men who were treated at Prince George's Hospital Trauma Center for Violent Injury, and that would be a gunshot wound, a stab, or assault. The primary goal of the study was to determine the risk factors for repeat violent injury. And so there were three ways of interviews over a two-year period, as well as field observations that I conducted over that time, along with my postdoctoral research fellow, Dr. Christopher St. Bill, who is now at an assistant professor at the University of Buffalo in the School of Social Work. So we uh, collected a lot of data and have written a number of articles about it. We also shot a short documentary film that was nominated for an award, and we presented multiple times about our work. We've been on NPR. We've been on several other mainstream media venues, and so we're very proud of the work that we're doing. And ultimately, that work turned into a hospital-based violence intervention program, which I co-direct right now at Prince George's Hospital Trauma Center. Wow, that all sounds amazing and sounds like such incredible work. I'd love to hear more about the work that you're currently doing. But I think we should get started with just talking about those risk factors. So you started saying that at the hospital, you started studying some of these risk factors for repeated violent trauma. So what are those? So what we were, we were looking for issues around kind of the code of the street, substance use. But I also want to make clear that because it's longitudinal, we, we kind of entered the study with using a grounded theory approach, meaning we weren't really looking to set out with a specific hypothesis, but allowing the data to kind of generate theory. And so we had some questions that were framed around code of the street, which is disrespect and associated with violence and how disrespect often leads to violent incidents among young black men, which is a conceptual framework developed by Elijah Anderson and has been used by a lot of violence researchers. But we also looked at gun violence, social networks, whether someone was insured or not, mental health issues, and so ultimately, at the end, by the end of the study, we had developed some of our own theories about why young black men come back to the hospital. And in addition, I also want to say we, we had another study 
at the University of Maryland Medical Systems Shock Trauma Unit in Baltimore, which was a quantitative study on secondary data analysis where we looked at 191 black men, young black men who had been treated by that shock trauma unit for violent injury. And the violence intervention program there actually had a risk factor for violent injury questionnaire, which had roughly 112 questions, which covered a range of domains from substance use to previous hospitalizations for injury, social networks, previous history of incarceration. And what we found in that study was previous history of incarceration was the most significant risk factor for repeat violent injury. After we completed that study, we moved on to the qualitative study at Prince George's Hospital. And ultimately, some of the things we found so far have focused on post-traumatic stress disorder. So we're writing a paper right now about how many young Black men have been traumatized and they have undiagnosed and untreated PTSD. We also looked at substance use and we've written a paper and have had it published in the Journal of Health and Justice on synthetic cannabinoid use among the population of young men that we're working with. And then we just recently written a paper which is under review now looking at the qualitative research methods and the challenges of being black male researchers in this context and some of the challenges we ran into as an ethnographic research team doing this work in a trauma unit. And so that paper, I expect to have a significant impact on the field because rarely have we seen ethnographic research teams that are comprised of two African-American men that do work with African-American men who look like us. Some of them come from the same backgrounds that we're from. And so what are the challenges that we encountered while we were in the field? And then what were some of the solutions for the challenges that we encountered? And then out of that study that we did at Prince George's County, one of the findings, one of the more significant findings was we, many of the young men that we had in our sample, I think roughly 92% did not have health insurance. And so I submitted another grant proposal to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which was ultimately funded through the New Connections Program to qualitatively look at the role of the Affordable Care Act Navigator at two trauma units, one at Prince George's Hospital Trauma Center and the other at the University of Maryland Medical Shock Trauma, which are the two busiest trauma units in the state. And I have to also say that Prince George's Trauma Center is the busiest level two trauma unit in the country. We treat roughly 700 victims of violent injury a year. And so we have you know, a huge volume of, of young men that are being treated by the hospital that are primarily coming from either Prince George's County or Washington, D.C. And because we're the closest trauma unit to the District of Columbia, at least 50% of the victims of violent injury we get are D.C. residents. But to get back to the Affordable Care Act navigator, I shadowed two navigators in those trauma units to determine what were their challenges with enrolling young men into health insurance and primarily Medicaid with the expansion of Medicaid through the Affordable Care Act. And so that paper is also under review and I expect it to be published pretty soon. We have a number of findings that we, we've we're working on now and, and several that we plan to, uh, to publish in the near future.
but all of the findings that we had were translated into the hospital violence intervention program that we have now that's up and running at Prince George's Hospital Trauma Center. One of the things that you mentioned was Anderson's code of the street, and we often hear about the level of disrespect that a young black man would encounter and then thus lead into a violent situation. Could you explain a little bit more about that in terms of how it impacts young black men? So Elijah Anderson in the late 90s had published a book, Code of the Street, which was set in Philadelphia and looked at how interpersonal violence frames violence and violent injury among young black men. And, and John Rich, who now had Healing Hurt People in Philadelphia, along with Ted Corbin, which is a, another hospital violence intervention program, had written a really great book called Wrong Place, Wrong Time, Violence and Trauma in the Lives of Young Black Men. And he also used Code of the Street as one of his conceptual frameworks to investigate and try to understand what leads black men, young black men to be violently injured. And, and it's primarily framed around this issue of respect or being disrespected. And so respect is, is a highly valued commodity in many disadvantaged communities and primarily because in, in communities that are affected by structural violence, respect becomes a valued commodity because many black men don't have other commodities that could be valued. So if we look at the dysfunctional school systems in many urban areas, and we have a, a significant number of young black men who are not graduating from school, you look at the employment or lack of employment in many urban areas, you find that young black men are often disenfranchised, particularly if they have a criminal record where they're unable to secure a sustainable career or housing if they have a drug felony because they're barred from public housing. And so uh, respect becomes a significant and valuable commodity in many neighborhoods. And I don't think that's just specific to young black men. I just think for men overall, I think respect is a huge issue across race, right? And so if someone, young men feel disrespected, many times they often respond to that disrespect violently. And so, so what we were finding is that at least in a Baltimore study with the 191 black men, is that that was one of the risk factors for repeat violent injury. But when we got down to the qualitative study at Prince George's Hospital with 25 young black men we followed over two years, what we were finding is not as much about disrespect in the code of the streets as much as there, there really isn't a code on the streets anymore. And so what we were hearing from young guys is that there really are no rules that frame violence, which I found to be really interesting. And it's something that we're, we're writing about now. And so if you think about what's going on in Chicago with the, the spikes in violence, and by no means do I want to use Chicago as the poster child of violence, because I think people need to understand that Chicago, at least per capita in homicides and shootings, is not ranked even in the top 10 among violent cities in the United States. And, I, and so we, we're hearing this narrative about Chicago and kind of using Chicago as a poster child in the same way previous politicians have used images of Willie Horton as this super predator black man to be scared of. And I think we're kind of pushing that narrative with Chicago. But I do want to say that the narrative that is coming out of Chicago is that since many 
of the older black men who were leading some of the gangs and, and structuring kind of the rules in the neighborhood have been incarcerated and many are dead as the result of violence is that there has been a breakdown in the rules, right? And so the informal social controls that older guys were using to, to frame violence and setting some informal rules in, in, in the neighborhood, which I would define as the code of the street, those guys are no longer in those neighborhoods be as a result of mass incarceration or addiction or death, right? And so what you have now are a lot of splintered factions of young men in Chicago that are basically moving without any rules to frame violence. And I think that's what we're really hearing now from the young men that are in our study is that there are no rules on the street. And so, yes, I think the code of the street was relevant for a specific period of time in a specific context, but I don't know if it's as relevant now in 2017 as it was in you know the late 1990s and early 2000s. And so what we found and, and I was just talking with a colleague about this a couple of days ago, as well as with my wife, and, and, and it's, it's really striking to me now that every single facet of our study and our findings leads back to the criminal justice system. If you look at it too, on, on a larger scale, it was really an indictment of how many young Black men in urban communities are under some form of community supervision, right? And so... That's one of the issues. And then in the quantitative study, we found that incarceration, previous history incarceration was the number one risk factor for being violently injured among young black men in Baltimore. And at least 88% of the sample we had out of the 191 had a previous history of incarceration of six months or more. Every single finding that we have, we can't get away from the connection of violent injury to criminal justice involvement. And I think the fact that young men who are, who are now ensnared in the criminal justice system are totally disenfranchised from employment to education, particularly if you have felony, you can't get public housing, you can't get a Pell Grant. It's difficult for you to get food stamps. It's difficult for you to get any form of public assistance. Mm -hmm. If you have to check the box on a job application, it's more likely than not, then you probably won't get a call back. And Diva Pager, another sociologist at Princeton, has done an excellent job at showing that young black men who have no record have less of an opportunity of a chance of getting a call back for a job interview than a white man with a, with a criminal record. Wow. So that speaks volumes about the impact of the criminal justice system and how that bleeds into what we're seeing in a, in a trauma unit. We're so far downstream, but if you look further upstream of where the bodies are coming from, you'll find that at the top of it, the criminal justice system is having a tremendous impact on the lives of these young black men. And it's something that we're really not talking about. We talk a lot about criminal justice and the impact of felony disenfranchisement, but we're not really talking about the connection between violent injury and the criminal justice system. And I think we often frame violent injury as dysfunctional and pathological among young black men, but it's really systemic and tied to structural violence. Thank you for saying that, because I think that 
oftentimes that's something that's definitely missing from the discussion, as you pointed out. And in many ways, these young black men that you're working with within the trauma unit, within the research that you're doing, they're having to cope with not only the issues of structural racism, of mass incarceration, of re-entry and being disenfranchised, but also with this threat of more violence and experiencing this again. So I'm wondering, in terms of the folks that you've spoken to, what are some of the ways that they do cope? What are some of those mechanisms? So you have self-medication where we're finding guys are smoking marijuana, those who, are, who may not be on probation or parole. Then guys who are on probation or parole relying on synthetic marijuana use but we also get a lot of guys discussing using syrup or lean, which is promethazine that is mixed with soda and sometimes candy, and, and it gives you kind of an opiate effect. So we, we, we get a lot of that. Prescription medication use, so guys using Percocets or Xanax and alcohol. I think those are the primary things that we're finding that guys are engaging in kind of this poly substance use. So it's really not one drug that they're using, but they may use multiple drugs over the course of the day to self-medicate. And that's primarily, you know, the result of two is the exposure to violence in their neighborhoods where you have undiagnosed and untreated trauma, adverse childhood experiences. So we have some young men in our conversations, once we begin to build a lot of trust and rapport, who revealed to us, you know, things that happened in their childhoods, which were just totally horrendous, that have never been addressed. And, and when we're hearing these things coming out of their mouths and they're telling us these really searing narratives of what happened to them as children, and these incidents have never been addressed, and this is actually the first time they may have revealed this to anyone. And so you can't discount adverse childhood experiences. It's one of the more significant risk factors in repeat violent injury and then how guys are using multiple drugs to self-medicate. And so as part of our program for the trauma unit in the Capital Region Violence Intervention Program, which we have out of the trauma unit, we're providing now mental health and substance use treatment using a model called MTREM, which is the Male Trauma Recovery Empowerment Model, and it's, and it's evidence-based. And so that's what we're using now. It's kind of roughly 18 sessions, and we'll be starting that within the next month or two. But it's, it's an evidence-based treatment model, and it's been used with criminal justice and substance using populations. And so since those two populations kind of overlap with uh, the violent injury population, we decided to use that that treatment mechanism. And so I would say that the self-medication is very real. And I think as researchers that work with this population, it's very easy for us to become traumatized, right? Of course. And that's another issue that we really don't deal with as gun violence researchers who work in the trauma unit is that we often experience kind of parallel and vicarious trauma through the guys that we work with. And so, you know, trauma is pervasive throughout the lives of the young men that we work with in their communities that have been affected by structural violence. And I keep emphasizing this concept of structural violence, which means, in a nutshell, harm that is preventable, right? And so we know that in 2017, we can prevent polio. 
because we have vaccines. And so we know we can prevent violence because we know what produces violence. Poverty produces violence. The lack of an education produces violence. Being disfranchised and marginalized produces violence. And so we have to begin to talk about structural violence and the trauma of living in a community impacted by structural violence, such as the community which Freddie Gray lived in, in Sandtown, Winchester, which on every health indice suggested that Freddie Gray was already moving towards a very slow death. And in fact, the life expectancy in his neighborhood is 65 years, where I think in Baltimore, the average life expectancy is like 73 years. And so if you look at the structural violence and the health indices in all of these neighborhoods, and if you include early violent death, you know, we have structural factors in these neighborhoods which are slowly moving young men towards a slow death. And if the work of Evelyn Patterson who's at Vanderbilt speaks to this, where every, for every year, I believe that someone has spent in, in incarceration basically takes two years off of their lives. And so she found that young men who have been incarcerated have a greater likelihood of dying while, while they're outside in the community than being under criminal justice supervision and incarcerated in a prison or jail. And that doesn't mean that we should lock people up, but it does speak to the structural violence that's occurring not only in these institutions, but also within our neighborhoods. And so I think even if we weren't catching guys in the trauma unit that were self-medicating because they were violently injured, they would probably be self-medicating because they're self-medicating the trauma that they've experienced uh, maybe as a continuum in their lives from living in a community that has been you know, structurally violent as well as experiencing adverse childhood experiences throughout their youth and then the impact of mass incarceration in their communities, which has devastated both their communities and families. And within everything that you've said, you know, I'm hearing a lot of unmet need, starting from these adverse childhood experiences through experiences within their neighborhood and everything that's going within the context of violence and trauma as well as us as practitioners dropping the ball in many instances in terms of how we can actually help particular populations. And I'm wondering, you spoke a little bit about your ethnographic work as a black researcher going into these communities and working with these young men. I'd love to hear more about that experience. So yeah, I think it's important to talk about. So I I recently had written a paper and I'm actually presenting it next week. It's called Behind the Bullet. And it's about the experiences of being a black male ethnographer who works with young black men in the trauma unit who in many ways look like me, they resemble me, they speak like me, you know, their body language is like me, they dress like me, even though they're maybe considerably younger, I see myself in many of the young men that I work with. And in fact, one of the young men that I encountered in the trauma unit, Chase Bullock, who was stabbed, I think, 12 times, medevac to our trauma unit, he now works with me. He works for the Violence Intervention Program. We often go out to schools to discuss his life growing up in Southeast D.C. and the impact of growing up in a neighborhood that, is, that has been marginalized and how that led him to engage in, in violence in his community, which ultimately led to him being stabbed multiple times. And so my experiences growing up in Philadelphia, I think I see 
a lot of the similar patterns of, of relationships and the context of living in a black neighborhood that I experienced growing up in the, in the late 1980s and the early 90s that I'm seeing right now. And so I don't think my life was any different than the young men that I'm seeing, which is probably, you know, the reason why I do the work that I do. It, it's, a, it's personally driven. I can remember as an adolescent watching guys in my neighborhood using promethazine and Xanax, which they called pancakes and sub, right? And so they were using that in the 1980s in my neighborhood. Guys were drinking it. And there was, there was one guy in my neighborhood in particular, his name was Guy, who was the first person I ever knew who was shot. And I can recall him coming up to the basketball courts on crutches and he was shot in his leg. And, and I just, you know, it, was, it wasn't fascinating to me at all. It was kind of pretty traumatizing to know that this guy was shot. And then ultimately after he was shot, he began to self-medicate and turned from a very jovial kind of outgoing person into introverted. He was using a lot of syrup, again, promethazine and Xanax. And then ultimately he was shot on my block and killed maybe a couple of years after that. He was my first real life experience of someone that was shot that began, I watched self-medicate and then was killed. And so I always use him as the example of why I do the work that I do. And so when I encounter many of the young men in the trauma unit, they often remind me of guys that I've seen in my own neighborhood and my own experiences with, with dealing with violence. And, you know, I come from a family where, you know, my grandmother was murdered. My uncle was murdered in two separate incidents. So it's not like as a professor, I'm immune to, to violence in my own community and even in my own personal life. And right. I think just doing this work has been an outgrowth of, of what I've experienced in my own personal life. And I've decided to kind of commit myself to, to changing that narrative for the young men that I've encountered. But I believe that if you're doing this work, you know, you, you have to be, you have to engage in some form of self-care too, because I think as social workers who, who work in highly intense, in emotionally charged environments and with populations that are often very uh, often disenfranchised. And we hear some really incredible narratives from the people that we work with. We still have to be concerned about how we take care of our own health. I've kind of recently made a commitment to, to make sure that I even take care of my own mental health because you can begin to take on a lot of the vicarious trauma of the people that you work with. Absolutely. And I think that's a point that we don't often emphasize enough that when you're working with individuals who have experienced trauma, especially within communities such as the ones that you're speaking of, you're then taking on that trauma as well. And we can't discount the fact that you may have experienced many of the things that these young men are experiencing. And we, we can't separate the two. We're working with and for communities and we're also experiencing these things as well. We are. We are. And we have to be very cognizant of what we're experiencing and how we can address our own trauma and not remain in denial about our own trauma. And in many ways, I think the behaviors that we have mimic the populations that we work with. I think we have a tendency to kind of push our own 
issues to the side and not really deal with them in a very forthright way. But there needs to be, at least in, in the schools of social work or schools of medicine and, and schools of social sciences, ways to prepare researchers and professionals and practitioners for dealing with that kind of trauma. And I don't think at this point we do a re really good job of that, but that that's for you know scholars like myself and my writing to be very honest about what I've experienced to create publications that I either put in you know peer-reviewed journals or even in you know mainstream outlets about my own experiences as a researcher, which is why which is really the impetus behind why I decided to write that paper mm -hmm. about my experiences in the field and maybe my narratives will touch someone who has also experienced the same thing and say a light bulb will go off in their head and say you know what these are some of the same things i've experienced but i've never told anyone about my own trauma and you know the saying goes that we're only as good as the tools that we use and oftentimes we are the best tool for working with people and working with communities and you've spoken a lot about the research that you've done, but I, I also see that you have produced a documentary called Bullets Without Names. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I've always been kind of uh, an aspiring filmmaker, and I think visual ethnography, I, I lean a lot towards visual ethnography, particularly as technology increases and, and it gets cheaper to grab your own camera right and shooting and now you can really shoot something on your on your iphone you can actually shoot an entire movie there was a, a young guy in my in my study who i thought had a really interesting story to tell and one of my former students amberly ellis who is an amazing filmmaker she and i decided to collaborate to do a short on this young man named smack we shot a story from basically from the beginning to the end. And some of the footage I shot myself, and, but she shot the vast majority of it and edited it. She was a student at American University in their, in their documentary film department. And she submitted it to the uh, American Sony Visions Award and we, we got nominated. We didn't win. But the documentary is basically about a young man who was shot and how he was coping with his injury months after he was discharged from the hospital. And so he talks a lot about PTSD and having nightmares and trying to keep his own child away from talking about guns because even a discussion with his child, even in, in a playful way, would begin to conjure up pretty bad memories of, of being violently injured. And he was also a young brother that was in our study who was self-medicating and using um, synthetic marijuana. So I don't, I don't think he would have an issue with just saying that because he's talked about it publicly. The film was basically about his struggle to make himself whole again. That was a very long process. And then we also, in the film, have his mother and his grandmother. And, it's a, and I think that's a really important narrative because my upcoming study, which I'll be doing this summer, will be focus groups with caregivers. Far too often, you know, we don't think about the young men that have to return to families because 90% of the, 
of the young guys we work with, particularly if they're young between the ages of 18 and 24, they live at home. And so you have guy, young men that are returning back to their homes and they're living with either their mothers or their grandmothers or their aunts and sisters and fathers, but typically the mothers and the, we're finding that the mothers and the grandmothers and romantic partners are taking on the bulk of the caregiving duties. So whether that's changing your gauze or bandages or trying to find health insurance. And so for SMAC, his grandmother spent an inordinate amount of time trying to acquire health insurance for him because his colostomy bag was beginning to attach itself to his skin because he didn't have a primary care physician to make periodic examinations to check on how he was healing. And so we're now focusing on what are the narratives of the mothers and the grandmothers who have to deal with not only the physical wounds, but the invisible wounds that many of these young men are carrying and the PTSD and being hypervigilant. Every time they may hear something drop, they think of a, it, it, they think of a gunshot in the same way that you would have these same symptoms among soldiers who were in Iraq or Afghanistan. And so how do these mothers and caregivers begin to deal with these issues? And then what are their own issues? What are their needs? What do they need? Because some of these young men, unfortunately, are coming back to their homes and many are paralyzed, right? And so that means that this, this has not only changed the life of this young man, but this has changed the life of his caregiver. But we, we haven't really explored what are their challenges and what are their needs. And so my next project will be focusing on the needs of the caregivers. And that was a direct result of filming that documentary and getting to know Smack's grandmother. That came out of that, that film, and we plan to do some additional films as, as well as we move ahead. That's incredible. I think especially focusing on the needs of the folks that are connected to the individuals. I think many times we think of these issues as a vacuum. So if you're working with an individual or just a young black man that's experienced violence in many ways, you're just thinking about them. You're not thinking about the context or the folks that are the caregivers and those that are in their lives. So I think addressing those needs, you're not only improving the individual's overall outcomes, but you're helping their families as well. And so we need to hear their story because for far too long, their story has been muted. And so I really want to illuminate their story and amplify their voice and bring resources to the caregivers as well because they're as, as much invested and, and tied into the health outcomes of these young men as, as, the, as this young man is. So I was fortunate to be awarded a, a seed grant through the School of Pharmacy, and I, and I have to thank Dr. Dan Mullins, who runs the, the Patient Center Out, Outcomes Research at University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. And he provided me with some seed grant funding to do these focus groups because ultimately I want to take what I find in the focus groups with the caregivers as well as I'm doing focus groups with victims of violent injury and the stakeholders in gun violence prevention efforts. And that can include trauma surgeons, cure violence interrupters, local pastors in the community who are, who are engaged in these efforts and, and taking all of that information and then submitting a PCORI grant. And so a couple of years ago, 
I submitted a PCORI grant, that's Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which is the uh, research arm of the Affordable Care Act. And I wanted to examine what patients of violent injury considered to be healthy outcomes. And I was scored really high. And I, I happened to run into Dan and he, he had read my PCORI proposal and thought that it was a really great proposal. And I just needed some additional data to make it a stronger proposal to win to win the award, to get the award. And so he provided me with the seed funding to do these focus groups. But it was always a narrative that I wanted to get on, on the mothers. And my previous work that I conducted in Harlem, when I, when I first started doing ethnographic work, I was following 15 boys in Harlem from the seventh grade to the ninth grade in, in their junior high school and in their community. And I was got really close with a lot of those kids and their mothers. And so I've written a lot about parenting and I wanted to write about parenting in this context. Like, what is it like to parent and provide care for a young man that has been violently injured? Specifically, if he's been injured multiple times. We didn't get to really talk about trauma recidivism, but trauma recidivism and it's the ultimate goal of what we're doing in the trauma unit is to reduce the level of trauma recidivism, and that's being hospitalized two or more times for a violent injury. And so what we found in our study at Prince George's Hospital is that one out of every three young men we had in our study had been violently injured and hospitalized for a violent injury two or more times. We had one guy, young guy, who was hospitalized every year for four straight years. Every year he was shot. Our main goal is to kind of reduce that trauma recidivism, but again, getting back to the caregivers is how do they deal with trauma recidivism if they're caring for a young person in their household? And, and I can't imagine what that feels like to have a son who is constantly going back and forth to the hospital for a penetrative injury. And so we want to understand what that means for the person that's being injured, but also what it means for the family members who are um, intimately involved in their lives. And it sounds like a lot of your work, in a way, is about voice. So not only using your own to really examine your own trauma as well as your own experiences, how you really relate to this population, but also shedding awareness on their own voice, their own experiences, as well as those that are connected to them. And I think that, at least from what I'm hearing, that's the ultimate best practice for those that are trying to do this work in terms of trauma is really what are the voices of those that you're working with? What are they saying? What are their needs? And how can you adequately address those needs? You know, I'd love for you to talk more about the violence intervention program that you have, as well as the work you're doing to reduce trauma recidivism. And in the context of practitioners that are listening, what are some things that they can emulate? What are some of those best practices and what are your overall recommendations for reducing trauma recidivism? So we so we just started. So we're using the NTRAM, which I think is I mean, it clearly has, has, is evidence-based. And so this is the first time we're actually testing the MTRAM on a violently injured population. And so, as I said earlier in our conversation, the MTRAM has been used with criminal justice and substance using populations. But since those two populations kind of overlap with violently injured populations, 
this will be the first time that we're, we're using that model for this population. And so I think that may be one of the ways that pra practitioners can begin to engage in this kind of work to reduce trauma recidivism. But, in, but there are other ways on, on the social service side as well that practitioners should be engaged in this kind of work. And particularly with our populations who often have very unstable housing situations and, and housing for us is one of the priorities in our program is to identify stable housing for the young men that come into the trauma unit. And then also work with closely with probation and parole. So we're just not violating young men who have technical, you know, technical violations. And, and, and I don't know if many of your listeners know, but the, the primary way that guys end up going back into jail is through technical violations. And so almost like 80% of, of recidivism or reincarceration is, is related to technical violation. That could be, you know, you missed showing up for an appointment with probation or parole, or you, are, you're, you had a dirty drug your analysis. So we also need to work with probation and parole very closely to make sure that probation and parole are kind of working with us and are cognizant that we don't want to send young black men back to prison, right? And so how can we get probation and parole to kind of mandate the services that we're providing? Because in many ways, we can't force guys to do it if they're, if they're not mandated to do it. So either we have to incentivize it, or if they're on probation and parole, we have to find some way for probation and parole to mandate that they stay involved and in, in engage in these services. And so that's another one of the issues that we're dealing with now. The other thing is, you know, this whole issue around job training. And, and I was talking to one of my friends last night who knows a young man who's been in 20 job training programs and has 20 certificates. And we have to move away from that model of just job training, job training, job training, and shifting guys from one job training program to another. We have to find ways for young men to have sustainable careers and that may require them to have to get credentials. And so I think the credentialing piece is very important. And there was a, a recent article that I read in Kentucky, which I think it was called from, from Justice or from Juvenile to Journeyman, where they were providing in, within the Kentucky state prison system providing ways for young men to get their journeyman's license in either like carpentry or, or get their license in to be an electrician or a plumber. And so we have to find ways that make sustainable careers for guys and not just put them on the path of job training. And I think that's very important for practitioners to be aware of. Like stop inundating young black men with just job training programs that are not going anywhere. And then ultimately, how do we work with the families? I mean, we have to include the families as a critical piece of this puzzle. And as you mentioned earlier, that we so often focus on the individuals that we don't focus on the families. And so we're also trying to integrate more of a, of, of a family support component to our violence intervention initiatives that we're, we're conducting at the hospital. But from a practitioner level, I think Violence intervention programs need 
a research component. And what you'll find in many violence intervention programs is that they're often very kind of service providers, but there's not a continuous research component. And so I would suggest to programs and practitioners that are working out there is that it's very important to have a research component that's continuously informing your program and continue, you're in a continuous state of evaluation what you're doing is it working so if you just are just going to focus on the service side of it and there's no evaluation or research component then i don't really think you can have an effective program and so that's also a piece and that that may require a lot of collaboration between the violence intervention programs and the practitioners that work for them and and researchers and so we need to have both we just can't we can't have programs that are just solely going to focus on providing services. We need research to inform these programs and to inform and question whether what we're doing is right and whether what we're doing what we're doing is effective. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Richardson, for this opportunity, for your time and your expertise. And I hope that our listeners can take these recommendations to their daily practice. I hope so. And I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. It's been, it's been great to talk about this work. Great. Thank you, everyone. We appreciate you joining us. I'd like to thank our sponsors, our presenter, Dr. Joseph Richardson, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work and to check out some of our resources, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we are changing the narrative together.